Hello and welcome to Before You Go, I'm Bryant Monte. And I'm Nicole Franklin, and I'm excited to talk with our guest today about one of my favorite topics, financial literacy. Yes, don't we all need that? Yes. <laughs> I do. Indeed. <laughs> <laughs> Our guest is Robert Branscombe, and he is from the great state of where are you originally from? I'm originally from Chicago, but for the last, since 1983, I've been living in Tacoma, Washington. Oh, Chi-Town, love it. Chi-Town. Used to live there. Nicole used to live there. Mm-hmm. Went to school there. Beautiful city. Love it. Except when it's cold. <laughs> <laughs> but it's still beautiful. Welcome to our show. Thank you. I wanted to start us off with talking about where you grew up and what that was like. I grew up in a little small town in uh, Indiana uh -huh. shortly after um, my folks moved from uh, Chicago, Illinois. They wanted a little bit more uh, comfortable environment for us to live in other than the south side of Chicago at that time. So I grew up in a little town outside of Laporte, Indiana. L Laporte, that's near where? It's near either Michigan City or South Bend, Indiana. Yeah, South Bend. <laughs> May I ask what year you were born and um, what years were we talking about your growing up years? I was born July 8th, 1939. Nice. So that makes you... I'll be 83 in July. 83. Wow. <laughs> How does it feel, though? How does it feel being 83? I feel very blessed. 82 and a half. Fortunate enough to have uh, pretty good health. I'm very active in my community or the one I just left, and I'm going to be active here in Phoenix. I have um, a great interest in being of added value to not only my clients, but to those people that I encounter on a daily, weekly, monthly, annual basis. Oh, my goodness. So, yeah, you've had a long career in finance, I understand. But before that, you were in the military. Can you talk, please, sir, about um, when that happened in your life? We've been meeting a lot of people who were drafted. I don't know if that was your situation, but um, we go from Indiana to where, and then how did you get in? I graduated from high school a little early. I was, actually, I was 16 and um, wow. went home at 17 and went into the military as a way of leaving home because there wasn't much for us to do at that time particularly for people of color. And I, I got into the military, which was an easy transfer for me because my father was very into being disciplined. So I found it just another place to be. Mm -hmm. It wasn't a big change. But I also found out that I loved it. I loved uh, the uh, opportunities of learning new uh, trades. I certainly, we, I was in the Air Force and I love airplanes. And so I spent four years in the Air Force got out. Um, and at that time, there was an eight year requirement. So you had to do four years active and four years reserve. And I stayed in the reserves. Mm -hmm. uh, and then shortly after the reserves, uh, Vietnam started. And uh, my unit was called up to go to uh, Vietnam. And I was uh, in combat flying air missions uh, over somewhere near the Cambodian border. And got in a little over 100 missions and was banged up a little bit and spent nine months in a hospital, got out of the hospital and came home and went back to school for banking business, mm -hmm. did that. And uh, then I got into the insurance business. I really love the insurance business. I love the aspect of being able to create wealth almost inst instantly for a person. 
by use of one of our insurance products. But I think one of the main reasons I really got into the insurance business is that I recognize what it is to be unable to provide if you due to injury or illness or even death. And so I don't, I don't look at my business as a selling opportunity as much as I do uh, problem solving. Absolutely. Um, there's been a pretty interesting insurance product I've had my eye on for a while um, that pays very well. So <laughs> I'm sure you know what I am talking about. What product is that? It's whole life insurance, but if it's purchased a certain way at a certain amount, you borrow against it and never pay it back. Is that true? Or was the well, agent selling I think what you're talking about is uh, the owning your own bank or having your own bank and accumulating cash inside of your policy and then using it to make your purchases as if you were going to go to the bank and borrow for a car or whatever. Yes. And you have to start out at age where you have time for that to accumulate, but it's a eminent banking business is a pretty good insurance product. I recommend it for you, particularly for younger people. Oh, okay. So um, I wasn't being sold a bridge. It definitely is something that is profitable. <laughs> right. I look at insurance as a, a means of solving a problem. And a problem would be if you had a mortgage and you wanted it paid off in the event of your demise, or if you wanted to send your kids to school mm -hmm. and you wanted to accumulate funds to do that, if you wanted to add to your retirement, those are all problem solving issues that for the most part, insurance can, can help you with. Mm -hmm. yeah. So I think one of the things that I truly enjoy in that aspect is not so much, and I mean this very sincerely, not so much selling insurance. I try mm -hmm. to ask the questions that would lead me to believe that there may be in my client's circumstance a problem that I can use an insurance product to help solve that problem. Definitely. I wanted to ask, what age should people start seeking financial advice? Um, because yes, these are, we hear the word insurance and then we think one thing and then we think, okay, that's $9.99 or $100 or $200 going out of my pocket every month. But the financial literacy part that there are certain financial products that might benefit you actually in the insurance field, what age, um, what's the youngest age that people should start um, getting to know about this, you know, being um, in touch with? these ideas and these products? To answer your question uh, somewhat humorously, I would say third grade because you- No, I agree, I agree. Turn out account around the, the third or fourth or fifth grade, but in actuality, either after high school or certainly before college, because usually those are two decision-making opportunities that a person has. Mm. But at the same time, when they graduate from school, they're either left with debt, particularly if they went to college with student loans from a, retirement planning standpoint of view, boy, I start with my clients around 50, 55. And then we look at what products can help them reach whatever their goal is in, in retirement. That's too late though, right, Mr. Branscombe? Not really. If you're 50 years Never old. Never too late. Never too no, late. No, it's not <laughs> too late. If you set a, a goal of, let's say you want $5,000 a month in retirement income, and you're working at a job that has a retirement plan you look at there's a three-legged stool i call and there's their your retirement plan from your job there's social security and then the balance of whatever that might be on that third leg would be your own personal savings account in this day and age i highly recommend everyone have a roth ira 
It's probably one of the best savings program for retirement that's come along in, in years, primarily because of the tax benefits. If you satisfy two requirements, when you open a Roth, that is you open it up and it, you keep it open for at least five years and you reach age 59 and a half, everything after age 59 and a half becomes a tax-free withdrawal. Okay. Obviously there's some penalties involved in between time. If you take the money out, you, you don't want to use it as what we refer to as an in and out account. Mm -hmm. But I strongly urge everyone that's a working person at least to get a Roth account. And you can start with as little as, I have some clients that start with as little as $50 a payday. Oh, it's a wonderful product, but there's a ceiling on the salary, correct? We can't be as wealthy as Bryant Monte. <laughs> yeah, yeah we're, we're, I always count yeah, my change at night. There, yeah, yeah, yeah there, there, there is a ceiling. And a lot of folks, uh, it's adjusted gross income is the ceiling, but in most cases, I would say the better part of 75% um, of Americans, maybe higher, will become eligible. The important thing is if the Roth isn't the vehicle for you, then there are other savings accounts, whether it be uh, fixed income or fixed accounts or the stock market. The point of it is you're not going to wait until you're 65 to start making those decisions. Yeah. Can, can I go back just briefly real quick, sure. talking about your uh, military experience? Because I know this kind of built up as you got older and you saw the need and you definitely have a lot of history and a lot of experience. But when you look at your experience in the military, how did that shape you and f mold you in a way that has brought you to where you are today and how you help other people? I think the, the one thing I really did enjoy about the military was the ability to go in different places in the world and see different cultures and see how other people mm -hmm. lived. And more importantly, to have the freedom to have uh, an opportunity to build a career that you can use in some cases outside of the military. Uh, like I mentioned to you earlier, the discipline part of it that a lot of kids coming out of school worry about we didn't, I didn't have that to worry about because I was, I was, my father was my first sergeant. <laughs> <laughs> Understand that. How so? How so? What kind of, what kind of lessons did your father pass on? And, and uh, we had the routine that we have to follow. We had chores that we had to do. We had uh, accountability. It was no just running the streets and coming home when we wanted to. So, right. uh, and, and my mother and father were, we're great, great parents, and I'm very blessed to have them. I, I didn't see it at the time because, of course, I wanted to be a teenager that wanted to be 21. But, <laughs> uh, but uh, the military was a big, a big piece of my life. The 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 regret that I have in the military was I did not enjoy combat, and it's not a easy thing to talk about because the horrors yeah. of war is not anything as glamorous as the John Wayne movies make it to be. Mm -hmm. But it did teach me a lesson important of having survival skills as well as the, the, the means of looking at what harm can be done to other people and not want those harms visited to you. We're seeing that now in, in Ukraine. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, but unfortunately, and I say unfortunately somewhat, well, I was wounded and spent, I mentioned to you, nine months in the hospital, but I had nine months to think about what I did in the war. And that's, it gave me a couple of different perspectives. One, being incapacitated and not being able to be out and take care of my family. 
as well as think about those people who did not have that same opportunity or was over 55,000 people that are still over in Vietnam in a hole somewhere. But having said all of that, I think one of the things that I love about mm -hmm. all of that is that I learned to have a great appreciation for human life, a great appreciation oh, for spirituality, a great appreciation for, I don't know if I should say this or not, if it's political, politically correct, but there is a God. And I can tell you firsthand that uh, I was very blessed. Mr. Brascombe, were you shot down? I, well, I just do not talk about that, but I was in the hospital for a long time. Okay. And you were awarded a Purple Heart for your um, service and what you went through. Like most of us who were there, talking about it um, is not a comfortable circumstance to have. Right. I'd rather talk about the blessings that I received from it, and that is A, I survived, right. and B, I, I have a great deal of feelings about the incapacitation of people, whether it be to an accident or injury or whatever, because that causes trauma in a person's life. I don't know if you've ever experienced being unable to do what you normally do because of some physical issue. Mm -hmm. And when I weave that into what I do, mm -hmm. that makes it easier for me, as I mentioned to you earlier, to have uh, a conversation with someone about what I do and why I do what I do added value to that is to try to see what I've offered to a person through the end. And that is we look at their, I review my clients at least once, if not twice a year. So seeing them grow is a great thing for me. It means I've done my job. Is there a client case that stands out to you? I have many of those. Um, one of them I can think of that just happened recently was I, in my early, I have to bag up for a second. In my early days of insurance, I soon learned that the product itself was usually governed by the laws and rules of the state. So there was not really much difference between one product and another. It was just the, the marketing aspect of it. But I liked having uh, what they, what's referred to as worksite marketing or payroll deduction because I didn't have to ask someone for money. The, the state, in this case, would take the premium out of person's paycheck and, and send it to them. Mm -hmm. But in, in, in holding people in our various products, accident, sickness, cancer, life insurance, annuities, I had a client that had subscribed to one of our cancer plans probably 15 years ago. And uh, in the course of my reviewing with one of her friends, they informed me that she had not been to work for over six months and that she had had uh, breast cancer. So I gave her a call. My intentions was to find out how she was doing initially and then to advise her that she did have a cancer insurance policy. Well, she had forgotten about it. Mm -hmm. So I was able to collect her information, get it to the home office, and lo and behold, maybe two weeks later, she got a check for around $25,000. Oh, thank God. $25,000 was a windfall for her because her husband was an over-the-road truck driver. And he stayed home to help take care of her, and they got short on funds and yeah. had two kids in school. And of course, there was lots of tears. And do I have to give this back? Do I have to pay the doctors with it? No, it's, that's all of yours. Mm -hmm. Well, some years prior to that, I'd given her a presentation about the benefits of having an insurance addition addition to her health insurance that she had at work, and 
there was taking out, it was $26 a month. They were taking out $13 and some change a payday. And she just simply forgot about it, as a lot of my people who are on payroll deduction do. So that was a great feeling for me to be able to share with her that she could keep that $25,000 plus right. that the company had I'm sure she was so grateful, so grateful for you. And that's the thing. It was payroll deduction. It wasn't saying, write me a check every month. And that is the beauty of it. Oh, there's so much variety. I I love this. I love this. Can I um, expand on that a a bit more? Um, There is a study out that says 67% of African-Americans with incomes of at least $50,000 have money invested in stocks or stock mutual funds. And and that was back in 2017. And that compares with 60% in 2010 and 57% in 1998. Um, 40% of African-Americans in the US are missing out on investing, right? And so I see when they put money in an insurance uh, product that they think of it as investing because they're putting it away it's an investment in what happens, you know, what could happen. And in some cases, you know, some financial reward, but we don't see it and it's supposed to do something good for us. And I can personally say that I have skipped out on a certain investment that a financial advisor keeps pushing me towards for what we've been talking about. He's like, Nicole, long-term care, long-term care. And I'm like, I know, but that's 200 a month you want from me, <laughs> you know? But he was telling me that if I'm in a situation, which we never know, it could be tomorrow, it could be 30 years from now, I'm missing out. And it feels like an investment that I won't see a quick return on. That's the long-winded way of saying, you know, have you been through this before? And, and how can we step up as African-Americans um, in this juncture? Well, I call it planning. And I, I use a lot of metaphor in my presentations. And I used to give a lot of group presentations. And since the pandemic, it's usually down to one or two people. But I used a lot of metaphor. And I'd ask Brian, if you're getting ready to go to Greece for a week with you and your wife and two kids, would you just go out to Sky Harbor or the airport and say, I want a ticket, I'm going to Greece? Or would you kind of look around the internet these days and see what was available from a ticket standpoint of view? What kind of hotel would you want to stay at? Uh, What kind of budget would you have for uh, expenses? I mean, those would all be planning things that you would do Hmm. weeks, if not months before you go. Right. Yeah. Not much different than that. And there are some products that we offer that having the ability to not deal with a what if, I I call them what if circumstances. What if you have an illness and you're gonna be off work for six months, do you have an income? What if you're 70 years old and you're being uh, diagnosed with something that's gonna cause you to be in a nursing home? Who's gonna pay for that? One of the big things that I find the most it's a difficult challenge to talk about with people is final expenses. I'm sure both of you may have been sitting in church if you go to church sometime, mm-hmm. and a pastor would make an announcement that sister or brother so and so had a family member that passed and they didn't have life insurance, and we want to take up a special collection for that individual to help them with the final expenses. 
not only is that an embarrassment, but my tough love conversation for my clients is, it's irresponsible. Everyone should have a final expense plan, whether it be for cremation or traditional service. Cremations can be anywhere between $1,000 and $3,000. Traditional service can be, in the state of Washington, a traditional service runs about $15,000. But that be, should be something that would be included with your overall estate planning and your, your, your financial retirement planning because that's not something that may happen. Eventually, that is going to happen. And if you've experienced having lost someone in your family or, or know of a friend, one of the questions that asks shortly after that's taken place by immediate family members is, how is this going to be paid for? So final expense planning is very, very, very important. But, you know, a lot of times, uh, especially among black families, we don't talk about these things. And when you talk about financial literacy, what's the root of this, do you think, when it comes to black families in particular? Either we don't talk about it, we don't plan about it, or we don't get personal enough, or we say, hey, I got mine, you get yours. I mean, all of that is seems like it's all wrapped up into the same issues that we face year after year, generation after generation. Well, you're, you're absolutely correct, Brian. Uh, although, minor correction, it just isn't black families. And I have a high diversity client. And talking about final expenses is probably one of the most challenging conversations that most families will have. Talking about long-term care right. is a difficult conversation to have. And the younger you are, the, the more you're apt to put it off because you know, you're invincible and you're going to live forever. So it's not an issue. You'd rather be talking about getting tickets to the final four. Right. But at some point in time, sitting down, I call it a round table family discussion. There should be a checklist that every family should have. And they should have this conversation with their person. They're going to have as a POA in my course of action. When I sit down and talk with someone, I have a cheat sheet that I used and, and I'll just share with you a couple of the items. We talk about their distribution of their accounts right off the bat. Money is going to be an important part of the retirement or going forward issue. So if we don't have any money, that's another issue. If we've got money, how are we going to distribute it? Three most important documents. Um, I'll just throw this question back to you. What do you think are the three most important documents every family should have, every person should have? There are three of them. Everyone should have. By the way, I'll throw my disclaimer out. I don't give tax or legal advice. What's the Wi-Fi password? Is one? <laughs> well, you're close. No, I'm <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm a will, a will, a durable power attorney, and healthcare yeah. directive. Question: What do you think of those three would be one of the most important? Hmm. The healthcare, durable power attorney. I got to tell mm -hmm. you from personal experience, if you don't have that in hand and you're incapacitated and it doesn't matter if you're 15 or 105, someone has to speak for you from a legal standpoint of view when they are dealing with your finances, your welfare, or in some cases, your hospitalization. Mr. Branscombe gives lots more advice when we return. And we're back with more Lessons in Finance with Robert Branscombe. One of the most important documents you should have is a power of attorney. Power oh, the power of attorney. attorney. Yes, okay. yes. Oh, I needed that one time. Well, Will, of course, it's going to be uh, the distribution of your 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 assets. Uh, healthcare directive is going to say how you want to be treated in the event of. But nine times out of ten, 
historically speaking, there may be a need for you to have someone speak on your behalf, whether you're 18 or whether you're 105. Mm -hmm. There are many things that could occur where you can't take care of your own affairs. And having someone look after you without having that document in place creates havoc for them as well as yourself. So I recommend to my clients to get those three documents. And if you have to get them one at a time, I would certainly suggest that you, if I had a crystal ball, I could tell you which one to get first, but I don't, and you don't either. Let's just say though, when we think about wills and, you know, writing a will, sometimes you feel like you really don't have much anyway. Maybe some people think that way and it doesn't really matter if it's furniture or whatever. I mean, how do you get past that part where it feels like I don't really need one because I don't have much in the first place? Well, you probably want to have a conversation with at least one conversation with an attorney, because even if you don't have anything, you may not think you don't have anything. But if you think about you've got a car, you've got a 401k, you've got Mm -hmm. uh, maybe some kinds of uh, sports card or other things that may have some kind of value, somebody's going to have to make a determination of that value when you when you die. Mm -hmm. Having that will in place could be a very, very simple, simple will, just saying this is what you want to have done. A will basically, and again, I throw my disclaimer out, I don't give tax or legal advice, but a will basically is just saying, this is what I have and this is how I want to distribute it. The durable power of attorney, and I'm getting back to that, mm-hmm. that speaks for you when you can't speak for yourself. And if you're unable to do that, again, it doesn't matter if you're 18 or 50 or 90, that person has to go through a court process to become your guardian and litem. That could be five, six, seven, eight, ten thousand dollars that alone, the time that it takes to do that. And again, I'm going to bag up Brian to the metaphor that I used about you're going to Greece. Mm-hmm. Highly unlikely, highly unlikely you're just going to show up at the airport and ask for a ticket. You might. Right. He, he would. Yeah. <laughs> but I'm going to compliment you, sir, and say right. you, you look like you are intelligent enough, savvy enough to say, mm-hmm. I think I'll look on the internet, see if I can find a decent airplane ticket. And maybe if I get it a month or six months in advance, I could save some money. I don't think you're just going to show up and say, give me a ticket to go. Right. No, of course. Right. Now, how frustrating is it for you, Mr. Branscombe, to have all of this knowledge, see it play out over and over again, the same thing, and then people coming to you who are hardheaded and they're not listening at, at the risk of sounding arrogant, I don't chase people, number one. And I'm speaking for myself as an agent. Mm-hmm. I don't chase people. If you go to your dentist and your dentist says, you have a cavity, and if you don't take care of your cavity today, I'm going to have to do a root canal. And you go back six months, you say, okay, I'll take care of it later. You go back six months later and that cavity is still there, but now it's causing you some discomfort, but you still don't want to get it pulled. Just give me something to kill the pain and at some point, you're going to recognize that pain to the point where you're going to want to do something. Unfortunately, that pain in the, in the financial world is when you can't pay for whatever that issue might be. And that gets to be pretty uncomfortable. Going to getting back to final expenses, as an example, if you've got a parent that suddenly passes away, no means of paying for their expenses, and you have to whip out your credit card and come up with $14,000. Now, that may not be a problem for you, but it's going to be an inconvenience. If you are off work due to a disability and you find out that your sick time at work is gone, 
and you have $3,000 or $4,000 a month in bills, but you don't have any money coming in. That's a toothache type of pain. You see what I'm saying? So I don't, yes. I don't, I don't uh, try to badger people into recognizing their responsibility. Basically, I give them the information that they need. I follow up when it's necessary. And then if they just don't want to take that advice, I'm no different than your dentist that says, I've told you, you need a tooth full. And if you don't want to do it, it's okay. I understand. And just to throw this out there, um, because we were talking about long-term care, I brought it up because I I was listening. (laughs) You know, it's just, it is a lot of money. But here is the reality in what people see over and over from what the, um, the man who was giving me advice was saying. If you're in a partnership or have a spouse and the spouse is sick, you as the healthy spouse who turned caregiver was spending money on that ill spouse. The ill spouse has now passed away. Where's the money for you? And so that's, you know, what he was uh, trying to push you know, to me and um, to anyone who will listen is that you may spend your all of your energy and money and then who's taking care of you. So since our audience is of a certain age and very conscious, um, there is a reality in that. I have seen that happen. And um, yeah, you, you kind of want to, you know, take care of business. So I call that um, Medicaid planning. In fact, if you go on to my website and I'll give you my website, it's senior advanced planning.com and one of the things that we talk about is medicaid planning and let me just give you an example if you have three hundred thousand dollars in the bank and you tell the person who's talking to you about long-term care you're not worried about it because you you have three thousand three hundred thousand dollars in the bank and that's going to pay for it well in washington the average long-term care annual cost is over ninety eight thousand dollars a year let's do the math how long do you have coverage about three years mm-hmm. what's the average age that we're living to now some people up to 90 90 100 plus years old. for our show <laughs> so yep. one thing i encourage my people to do when they're doing their estate planning is to look at what it would take you to qualify for medicaid and the reason that and that that is so important you can't wait until remember the toothache analogy i gave you yeah you can't wait until that time to say I'm going to ditch all of my assets and give it to my kids and I'll be able to qualify for Medicaid because the government's no dummy. They say there's a five-year look back period. Mm-hmm. So you're in that circumstance. You need to be on Medicaid because you don't want to spend all of your kids' inheritance, but you can't give away that money because the government says you, you didn't do this within that five-year period. So now you're going to pay for it until you're down to $2,000 and then you may qualify for it. But what if you did the planning, you met with an estate planning attorney prior to that, and you set your assets up so that that can be protected from that kind of issue, still get long-term care if that's what you're able to qualify for. These days, it's kind of tough. Yeah. You, you can't wait until you're there and then start trying to plan for long-term care. Great advice. What, what are some of the things that might have surprised you in this process of trying to help people? The personal story, and I'm almost um, ashamed to even have this conversation, but since you've got an audience, they need to hear it, and they need to hear it from the real world. My sister passed away without having any of those documents that we talked about. Mm -hmm. She was in Indiana. Her son 
was her person that was looking after her. So now she has passed away. She's in a funeral home. The funeral home cannot proceed with what they need to do because they, they won't give him the death certificate so that he can go to the bank and take out what funds that she has to cover her expense. The bank won't give him the money from her account because he didn't have a POA, a personal power of attorney. So there was a period of time in there that my sister was just laid in rest until all of that could take place. Mm. That's an embarrassment. That's a pain. That's a that's an uncomfort. And the point of it was, he didn't. He was too ashamed of it to even tell other family members. So we didn't find out about it until it was at the desperation point that the funeral home was charging every day that that person was there, that my sister was there. So it added to that cost. It finally got taken care of. But the point of it is, and my personal story is, a piece of paper could have avoided that. Ryan asked me a little while ago the importance of the military to me. I was in special ops. And one of the things they, they taught us to the point that it was just automatic. If you don't take care of your equipment, it's not going to take care of you. Yeah. You're jumping out of a plane and you're falling through the sky and you forget where or you haven't practiced pulling the D-ring. That first bounce is going to get you. <laughs> You got to have some kind of plan, some kind of uh, action plan to take care of the what ifs of life with my sister and, and her son. That wasn't the case. So I, I use that story sometimes reluctantly to make a point, Brian, mm -hmm. a simple piece of paper, a simple 20 minute conversation with someone could have avoided the embarrassment of her being in a funeral home situation and just being there and, and with no attendance of the fact of being housed until there was money available to take care of it. No person should live a life where that, at the end, that kind of loss of dignity exists, in my opinion. And this is a wide ranging problem. I'm thinking of, you were saying your sister's son. So I taught college for a number of years and it happened to one of my students where there was an unexpected death in his family. And he had, he was on his way to see me. So he had to call me and tell me that. And the first thing I said is, this is gonna sound uncomfortable. Get to the bank before the death certificate is issued. Because if you all don't have it together, the account is going to be frozen. And he did, but who knows this? Who knows this unless we're taking this advice, Mr. Branscombe, <laughs> you know, about these pieces of paper. Well. You know, that that used to be an excuse, and I say this with a great deal of respect, both to the listening audience and, and yourselves. This day and age, it's possible to get a doctor degree just by going on the internet. The lack of information is just, that's, that's not a good excuse these days. It's the willingness to do what, the willingness and the responsibility. Those are the two key factors. Actor. Well, actually, there are three willingness, responsibility, and implementation. And what my job and other people that do what I do, we use the communication tools that we have available to us. I gave you my website as an example. If you go to it after the program or whenever it's convenient, you'll see it's not designed to sell anything as much as it is to inform and give people what if scenarios and what tools can be available for them to look at long before it gets to be an issue. Mm -hmm. And for those and, out there who, who might be struggling financially and say, well, that's last on my list of things I have to pay. 
What do you tell them? Well, there are other ops, there are other things that a person can do within their community. There are other volunteer organizations. There's other legal volunteer organizations. When a person is absolutely destitute, then there's a there's a, the means of looking at what's available to them in the state of Washington. It's our department is called Department of Social Health Services, and they have a department called Aging and Adult Services. And then veterans, I, I should have mentioned this earlier. There are a lot of veterans that think, I'm not going to worry about it because I'm, I'm a vet and the vet's going to, and the VA is going to take care of this. That's not totally true. It's on my website, by the way. Mm-hmm. The what if scenarios, as I call them, they're going to happen. And being prepared for them is probably the best medicine. This has been fantastic advice. Can I take a quick detour to Washington State and ask how you ended up there, especially in that pilot for a day program? When I uh, moved to Washington State, it was kind of like a deja vu moment for me because my first duty station in the military was at McCord Air Force Base. And McCord Air Force Base houses a lot of aircraft and one of them is a C-17 I just like and I stayed pretty active with the military because I just happened to like airplanes. <laughs> one of the things that I committed to when I was in the hospital was if I ever got out of the hospital at some point in my life, I don't know when it was going to be, but I wanted to do something to give back. The challenge and I say this somewhat reluctantly because I don't like to talk about it, but some of the people that we we were engaged with during combat were all adults. And it was difficult sometimes for me to think about that. So when I had an opportunity to give back to kids, at that time, we came up with the idea of putting together a pilot for a day program. And that would take kids and allow them to be a pilot for a day, literally. We would promote them to a first lieutenant. We would take them through pilot (laughs) training. We would get them a pilot gear. We even let them fly the airplane in our simulator, the same one the pilots train in. And uh, at this point, where McCord is the only Air Force base with the honor wall for pilot for a day kids, that uh, if you go into their squadron where we conducted the, the training, on the wall is a whole bank of pictures and photographs of kids, some of them no longer with us because the, one of the criteria was kid had had some sort of challenge that would cause him not to live a normal childlike life. And a lot of them, the difficult part for me was at least we would lose them. And we were talking about kids ages three, four to maybe 12. Wow. Uh, Um, I love that. I love that program. Anyone stand out to you? Yes. There was a little girl that uh, stood out to me. She uh, had brain cancer, but she was just a ball of uh, love and she was uh, seven maybe eight years old and uh, when we had our pilot for a day she just hung out with me all day long and when we got to fly the C-17 she was just thrilled to death but anyway one of the things I did I stayed in touch with the family and when she passed the colonel who is now Brigadier General flew back from Washington D.C. to be at her ceremony and I went to visit her prior to her death in the hospital, and I gave her, because uh, her mother told me she liked teddy bears. So when she was about ready, she knew she was intelligent enough to know that she was going to pass. She said she wanted to be sure to give her friend at father for a day her teddy bear. Hmm. I have oh. that teddy bear today. <laughs> oh. 
So that's that's that really sticks out to me. You are definitely a man of service, Mr. Branscombe. <laughs> I've enjoyed it. I just hope I've made a contribution to your radio audience. And oh, you I, have. <laughs> you have. I'm available. Just give me a call. I'd love to speak to you. Once again, his website, everyone, is senioradvancedplanning.com. And we just want to thank you all so much for listening to us here on KBLA Talk 1580. And be sure to visit our website at beforeyougo.tv. We want to remind everyone that these stories are what make a show like ours possible. There's no time like the present. What What a a gift. gift.